Hey guys, welcome to episode 37 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. Before we begin the show, we want to thank and mention our sponsors for today's episode, Third Love, FabFitFun, and Kopari. If you want to support the show, you could check out these amazing offers they have for you. But if you can't do that, you could always leave us a five-star review on any listening platform that you use for podcasts. Another way to show your support would be to donate to our Patreon page. We are $15 away from our latest goal, and we would love to hit that this month. So far, your donations through Patreon have allowed us to order better mics, soundproofing, and a mixer. We can't wait for those things to arrive so we can just continue upping the quality for you guys. So now that all the business is out of the way, let's get into this week's case. With it still being October, I thought that we should bring you a case that would put a chill up your spine. When I heard about this case, like a lot of other ones that we've done, I was shocked because I never really heard it on other podcasts. So this one's crazy, and the premise is something that I thought only existed in horror movies. I know I say that a lot, but I really mean it with this one. (laughs) In fact, an urban legend, one of my favorites actually, sprung from the true details of this case we're going to talk about today. It is because of this that I don't want to give anything away. Just know this case begins and ends tragically. I want you to enjoy this crazy ride minute by minute. But I promise you, ghosts, scares, delusions, jealousy, desperation, and as always... Murder. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So let's visit the quiet New England town of Pepperell, Massachusetts located about half an hour's drive from Boston. But anyone who lives in Boston knows this is a really generous time frame. It's more like an hour. It is October, just like it is now, but it's 1986. Those who live in the Northeast know there is nothing creepier than a colonial town during October. It's here that we're going to pick up with the Andrews family. The family consists of Brian Andrews and his two daughters, Annie, 15, and Jessica, 13. All three were going through a difficult time. The girls and Brian had recently lost their mother and wife, Deborah, to a long battle with cancer in April of 1985, at only 34 years old. The girls were having a very difficult time with the loss, as they were young teenage girls in need of a mother who they could talk to and confide in. In their mourning, the two sisters became very close, basically inseparable. Their father, Brian, was a single parent, and because of this, he spent most of his time working, and the two young girls had to spend their time alone. They tried as hard as they could to try moving on with their lives. They would do homework and talk on the phone with friends, and sometimes even boys, Annie especially. But they just couldn't get past the fact that they wanted to communicate with their mother. On one date, over ice cream, Annie is going to tell an interested boy that she speaks to her mother every night. And sometimes she can feel her mother's presence with her in the room. And as a joke, the boy responds, well, does she talk back to you? But Annie got really offended at this. The wounds were still fresh. And she immediately left the date. 
However, on her walk back to her house, she thought about what the boy had said to her. What if there was a way for her mother to talk to her and her sister one more time? So Annie goes to the library and takes out a book on holding a seance. And using a makeshift Ouija board, their mother's candles, and a crystal necklace that she used to wear, they set up a seance in the basement. Oh no, please don't. Don't do it. (laughs) I am petrified of any mention of Ouija boards, crystals, even candles in weird patterns. (laughs) candles set up in weird patterns it flips me out yeah like it's very worrisome to me it's like do you know what might happen when you do this yeah it never really works out well i've never heard a story begin this way and then they're like and it was a great communication and they just end it yeah whether it's real life or movie based it never works out you're completely right don't even try it So during the seance, the girls are going to try and conjure the spirit of their mother. What they're going to do more than work with the Ouija board is that she's going to hold up the crystal necklace of her mother and tell the spirit that she wants to move the necklace side to side to answer her questions for her. So that's how they're supposed to be communicating with the mother. So they ask really innocent questions. Was she there? Did she miss them? And whether or not she was in heaven. However, in the middle of the session, their father is going to stop them. And he said whatever they were doing, it's no good, and they should go upstairs and focus on their homework. The father gets a 100A+, like, stickers all over the place, like, he deserves an award. No, he doesn't, because the number one rule with seances, Ouija boards, any type of activity like this, is that you have to say goodbye. And they never do. Okay, but... And when you never say goodbye, that means you're leaving, you know, I mean, it sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud, but the portal is still open. So he kind of screwed up a little bit. Okay, but you know what? He's just, he's pretty much enlightening them. Hey, just like I said before, nothing's good, no, nothing good is going right, to come out of it. but they didn't close the session. So like the three rules of a Ouija board is don't play in a graveyard, always say goodbye, and don't play alone. It scares me that you know the rules. I'm sorry. I, I hope you just looked the rules up somewhere and no, it's just from not it's from them. the the movie, the Ouija board mm, movie. Got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that kind of eases me a little bit. Yeah. All right. So shortly after the séance, strange things began occurring in the Andrews household. Here it comes. Oh man. So the girls alone, as they often were, begin to hear a knock at their back door. When Annie goes to answer it, no one is there. The girls exchange glances, and Jessica asked Annie if she thought it was her mother. The girls hoped so. However, the noises are going to continue. As Annie is sleeping one night, she thinks she hears a knocking coming from within her closet. She gets up and out of bed to look inside. However, there's no one there. And as she goes to get back into bed, she hears another knocking. This time, no one's there. As she goes to get back into bed, she hears another knocking coming from her walls now. At this point, she's terrified, and this doesn't feel like the presence of her mother. She yells into the darkness of her bedroom, Whoever you are, I dare you to tap again. And as soon as she spoke, there was another tap on the wall. Then another but this time in a different place. And a few seconds later, there was a tap on the opposite wall. What? Yeah. 
Okay. That would scare the living shit out of me. Uh, yeah, I would never be able to sleep in that house again. I'm sorry. Never. <laughs> you, you and me both. You and me both. I really just, I couldn't do it. So Annie flies under the covers and closes her eyes until she falls asleep. The next night, the same thing happens to her and her sisters as they're watching TV on the couch waiting for their father to get home. When Brian Andrews arrives home a few hours later, he finds the girls sitting up on the couch with every light in the house on. They explain to him everything that they have been experiencing since the seance. He tells his daughters that he completely understands how they feel and that they're just missing their mother so much that they're just imagining things and that maybe he shouldn't be leaving them alone as much as he is because maybe they're getting scared too. Right. And I understand. I mean, I, this the moment you read that to me, it makes me remember when I used to like see things at my house when I grew up, when I lived in Queens, you know, I, my parents would come home to every light on in the house. And the first thing my dad would say to me was, oh, come on, stop. We have every light on. What is this lunar park? And I was like, what does it even mean? That's and I still don't know what that means. <laughs> John, but, it's a park with like, oh my God. But whatever. You, you get my point. Like, okay. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> I just had to sneak that one in there because my dad was just ridiculous. Never believed me. Well, I think that the first thing you want to do as a parent is not tell your child that you, even if you do maybe believe them that something weird's going on, you're going to say, no, it's not happening to try and calm them down. Right. Especially Brian Andrews at this point, because he was never really home because he had to work so much. He was a bus driver. Right. So he had to be out. So the last thing he wanted would be to work his daughters up into hysterics. Of course, because he's not there. But uh, yeah, right. I don't blame them for being scared. I would be. So the girls try to explain to him that it isn't any of those things. And that something really is happening in the house. But at this point, Frank gets really frustrated with his daughters and tells them that he doesn't want to hear talk of this ever again. So he basically forbids the whole topic. Probably because he's scared. Well, yeah, I think he's just, I don't know. He's done with it. He's got a short temper, teenage girls, not the easiest to deal with. Single parent. Yeah. You know, that's not easy. Right. So, And, you know, it's also involving what is maybe and possibly might be the spirit of his wife. So it's probably something that weirds him out a little bit. Yeah. So even though Brian Andrews doesn't want his daughters talking about the paranormal activity that's happening, it doesn't mean that it comes to an end. The girls were tortured while they were home alone. The knocks on the wall and the doors continued in response to the girls questioning. The knocks on the walls and the doors continued and they would also continue in response to the girls questioning. But now the lights would begin to flicker, and the doorbell would ring, and no one would be at the door, and items were being moved around the house, whether it was something that was left on a table would be on the floor, or an entire piece of furniture would be moved across the room. Which is crazy, because that means whatever it is... Is strong and powerful. Yeah. But whatever was responsible for this seemed to be intelligent, because the activity never took place when Brian Andrews was home. Which is odd. Well, no, it's it's like playing games with the girls. True. Which is scary. So the girls continued to endure what was happening and not mention it to their father in fear that he would get angry with them again. However, one event is going to make them break their silence. As they were working on their homework in mid-November, the girls began to hear a banging on the pipes of the house. 
which were located in the basement. Annie, who the sounds seem to surround more than Jessica, gets angry at the noise and just wants it to stop. She's going to grab a butcher knife from the kitchen, and with her younger sister at her heels, she heads downstairs. She wants to confront whatever is doing this to her and her sister. They walk into the basement and see nothing. However, when the girls turn around to leave, they see written on the wall, in what appears to be blood, the words, I'm in your room. Come find me. Are you serious? Yes. Oh my god. The girls ran upstairs screaming and called the police. Authorities notified Brian Andrews that police had been dispatched to his house and he should return home immediately. When Frank returned home, he found his daughters outside giving their statement to police. They had told authorities everything about the banging, the lights, the doorbell, and the moving objects. The officers told Brian Andrews that they had searched the whole house, checked the basement, and everything was clear. The officer told Brian to follow him into the basement, where the writing was. He showed the father of two that the writing on the wall wasn't blood, but ketchup. Hmm. And the officer spoke very frankly, and he said that Brian shouldn't be worried. He sees behavior similar to this in children this age when they go through loss or divorce, and it was really nothing to worry about. So really, it's what the officer is saying, that it's the girls acting out, needing attention, or feeling like they just really miss their mother, and this is their way of kind of getting it out there. Right. They kind of... They kind of lash out. Right, but they're, but the officer does put Brian at ease, saying, okay, this is kind of normal. Don't think it's too weird, but maybe, you know, your daughter should see somebody. Right. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break to hear from our first sponsor, Third Love. I love podcasts as much as you. And if you've listened to true crime, you've no doubt heard about Third Love. I first heard their ad on a true crime podcast that I love to listen to and ordered right away. I'm so glad I did because I found the most amazing bra. Third Love uses thousands of real women's measurements to design a bra that has women's sizes and shapes in mind so that they fit impeccably and feel even better. Third Love also just added 24 new sizes making them the industry leader with a total of 70 sizes. Take your Fit Finder quiz today, and in less than a minute of answering fun, simple questions, you can identify your breast shape and size to find the bra and fit that works best for your body. No more prodding and awkward measurements at the store that always result in the furthest thing from your size. These bras have a fit guarantee. Third Love guarantees a perfect fit. Returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off of their first order. Go to thirdlove.com TCC to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off of your first purchase. Again, that's thirdlove.com TCC. For 15% off your first order today. Okay, let's get back to the show. 
Frank is going to tell his daughters privately that he's very disappointed in them and that he doesn't appreciate them acting out the way they were. He wanted them to see a therapist because they weren't coping well with the loss of their mother and this bizarre phase that they were going through needed to end. Weeks pass. The girls continue school. They see that therapist their father wanted them to and all seemed to be pretty quiet. It seemed as if the Andrews home was returning to normal. However, one cold night in December of 1986, the girls are sitting on their couch watching a movie when Annie hears the banging again. She tells her sister to lower the volume on the TV. When they both begin to hear the knocking, they agree that they should go upstairs and check on the noises. As they head up the stairs, they're stopped dead in their tracks. They see written on the mirror on the first landing, again in what appears to be blood, the message, I'm back, come find me. Almost as if this thing went away on purpose and now is back. That's so creepy. It's so crazy. Like, like what the hell is going on? And you also on? have to put yourself in the mindset of a 15 and 13 year old girl, right? Oh, of course. Completely terrifying. So at this point, the pounding on the walls from within their father's bedroom continue. And as the girls go to run back downstairs, they find in the kitchen a picture of Annie stuck to the wall with a large butcher knife. Oh my God. Yeah, pretty scary. The girls run out of the house as fast as they can to the nearest neighbor's house. The neighbor wants to call police, but the girls beg him not to do so. They ask the man to call their father instead. Obviously, they didn't want to make him mad. The neighbor follows their wishes and waits outside with the young teen girls until their father gets home. Gets to the house, he sees again that his daughters are in hysterics. Wanting to end this once and for all, Brian Andrews is going to tell the neighbor to stay with his daughters as he checks out the house. As he approaches the house, he hears the noises of what seems to be multiple television sets blaring. He turns around and asks the girls if they did this. They said they didn't and began to cry. Brian, a little more apprehensive than before, is going to continue into the house. He turns off the TV in the living room and begins to search the first floor. In the kitchen, on the counter, he finds two flutes of champagne. The last time he drank from them, was his wedding anniversary. He looks around and he sees that Annie's picture is stuck to the wall with the knife, just as they explained. Brian continues to search the first floor and does not find anything. He then chooses to search upstairs. As he walks up the stairs, he finds the message written on the mirror. As he reaches the second floor, the first thing that catches his attention is his own bedroom. All other doors are shut, but his is open, and the small TV he has is on full volume. As he walks closer to the door, he realizes that there's another message written on the wall of his bedroom. In again what appears to be blood, it says, Marry me. As he slowly opens the door to his bedroom, he is immediately taken aback. There's a figure standing in his room, facing the wall. 
The figure is wearing his wife's wedding dress and has long blonde hair, just like she did. Brian doesn't know what to say, and he finally chokes out, Deborah. The figure slowly turns around, and Brian realizes that it's not his wife standing in front of him, but a man. A man that had black, white, and red paint rubbed all over his face as he slowly pulled off the blonde wig with one hand brian realized he had a hatchet in the other as this man advanced toward him brian ran down the stairs he stopped at the first landing and looked back and he thought to himself is this real and he was reminded quickly that it was real because the man was still coming for him walking very slowly what in god's name (laughs) isn't that the craziest thing you've ever heard that is insane the fact that this person had makeup and a wig (laughs) was wearing her actual (laughs) wedding dress yeah and that oh my god and had the flutes of champagne that is beyond what is this so Brian is going to run out of the house, grab his two daughters, and yell back at the neighbor that they need to get back in his house. Once safely inside, the four are going to call police. Good idea. Yeah. Brian has no disillusions about what's going on. There was definitely an intruder in his house. Once the police arrive, the Andrews family greeted them in front of their house. The girls cried as their father explained what he saw once he got into the bedroom. The police advised the family to stay behind the police vehicle until the search of the house was complete. Two officers go into the house and search. One officer checks upstairs as the other stays on the first floor. While searching upstairs, the officer is shocked to see the bizarre scene in the bedroom. He calls to the officer below. And as the officer on the first floor walks towards the stairs, something is going to catch his eye a bookshelf that is slightly out of place. He notices there's molding behind the shelf, and he moves it as he calls up for assistance. Behind the bookshelf, a door is revealed. Through the slightly ajar door, the officer sees a face painted white, black, and red. The officer yelled for the man to come out with his hands up. As soon as the man did, both officers rushed him and cuffed him, checking him for weapons. As the officers brought out the suspect, one reading him his Miranda rights, while the other was asking him what he was doing and why he was doing it, the suspect looked right at 15-year-old Annie and said, Ask Annie. She knows. After this strange conclusion, more officers showed up at the scene. They searched the house and they found that this man had been living in the walls of the Andrews house for about two months. Sleeping at night in a hole behind the dryer. It seemed that he knew when to come out and when the girls were alone because he was always watching them through the vents. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. That it's a, it's a real life nightmare. It's absolutely terrifying. I mean, it's safe to say that the house had to have been old for there to be... Space in between the space walls. Space between yeah. the walls and... Yeah, it was an old colonial house in yeah. Massachusetts. Yeah, that's crazy. And wasn't the... the um, there was a room under the, 
underneath the stairs. That's where the cop found the bookshelf, right? Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. kind of underneath the stairs, like like Harry Potter. Okay. But like the creepiest Harry Potter of all time. With makeup. With makeup on and a wedding dress. <laughs> What's, I mean, this is scary on so many different levels, but the teenage girls are going to have a really long time recovering from this because not only were they vulnerable because of the death of their mother, but now they have this, I mean, he's more than just a voyeur, but when your privacy is breached like that, where you feel like someone has watched you in really at your most intimate moments, which he probably had done to the girls, that's really hard to get over. So the girls, when they talk about recovering from what happened to them, they say that's the biggest thing was that they felt like they, they lost their sense of privacy. Yeah. Well, I mean, which, I mean, how could you possibly go on after this and not have... Oh, yeah. Always be looking a, in your vents, be terrified. Yeah. Like having kind of like eyes in the back of your head. Like I would... I would I, like I would check every little crevice in my house right. to make sure nothing was looking back at me, and that right there is traumatizing. It is. It also reminds me of this like crazy, creepy movie called Crawl Space, where uh, this guy owns an apartment complex and he would look in at all of his like tenants like through their vents and stuff. It was so creepy. He would look through their crawl space, like be in their crawl spaces. That's exactly what he did. He was living within the crawl spaces of the house. That's so creepy. I know, like, uh, like I kind of know how it is to have, like, to have a house like that. My queen's house was like that, and it's so crazy, guys. Like, you could really fit and move around so easily within the walls of a, of the house. It's kind of crazy. And I'm so glad that they don't design like that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so. The fact this is the true facts of a story that actually happened, but the facts of this case are going to give way to an urban legend kind of coming forward. And the urban legend, of course, always gets skewed from the real details. Now, the real details is there was a man living in the walls, he came out, he had paint on his face. What the urban legend is going to become is the babysitter clown story. That's where the babysitter is babysitting in a house that has all of these clowns. The family's kind of obsessed with them. And as she's babysitting, there's one clown sitting on a rocking chair that's really scaring the kids and and scaring her because it's kind of big. So the kids eventually go to sleep and she calls the parents to ask them if she could um, move the clown on the rocking chair because it's really giving her the creeps and she feels like its eyes are following her around the room. So that's when the parents tell her, we don't have a life-size clown that we put on the rocking chair. <laughs> that's good. And it was somebody hiding in there. Okay. But I, when I was a teenager, I heard the story differently. Of course, it's always like, oh, we know this guy who this really happened to. But the babysitter was babysitting and was creeped out by this clown doll that the kids had. And... She calls the parents and says, oh, yeah, but that clown doll is really creeping me out. And the parents said, we don't have a clown doll in the kid's room. Then they realized that it was like um, like a little person dressed in a clown suit that was like eating. What? That people's like food in the middle of the night and like living in the kid's room. It was like a homeless no person. No fucking way. Well, I mean, obviously it's an urban legend, but I remember it creeped me out so bad that like <laughs> just the idea of someone... You think when you're home, you are completely safe. Yeah. But you're really at your most vulnerable if you don't know if someone's there. Well, it's like, yeah, I mean, when there's nobody around, you are your true self. 
Right. You know what I mean? You are able to just carry on like you like. Right. Your your guard is down one hundred percent. Yeah, and that's scary. Yeah, I wouldn't like that. No. Yeah, that's definitely something that is so terrible. So that's why this whole case grabbed my attention. And this isn't just the case. There's so much more that happens. But before we get any further, let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor. Our second sponsor today is FabFitFun. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box delivered four times a year with full-size fashion, beauty, home, fitness, and wellness products for just $49.99 a box. FabFitFun is a great gift to yourself or to a loved one. Do you have a daughter who's going to college or a friend who's going to be a new mom? FabFitFun is an awesome care package. I cannot get enough of FabFitFun. I have to say it shocks me every time I get my FabFitFun box that all the products that I get are completely full size. And I find that I get a new box before I even finish my last products. And I really love them. It opens my mind to things that I might have never tried before. I love the oxygen masks that I get, the moisturizing creams. I got a full set of brushes with the last package. It's amazing. And just for $49.99, that's what I might pay for one of those items. So you're always getting more than your money's worth with every package. It really is incredible what you get. And FabFitFun promises to never send you any sample sizes. For example, this fall box has a value of over $275, but you can get it for just $49.99, $39.99 if you use our code. This fall's editor box was incredible. Like I said, I love the oxygen mask. I still use my Vince Camuto tote from the last. And I love my sleep mask now. I get the best sleep knowing that everything is blacked out, even though John has the air purifier on that's so bright. Sorry, air is important. Okay, well now I can sleep in peace. (laughs) I love that every box opens my eyes to amazing new products. Sign up today at fabfitfun.com to get your fall editor's box. The FabFitFun Fall Editor's Box is in limited supply, and these boxes always sell out. Use our code TCC to get $10 off your first box. Go to FabFitFun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well lived. Again, use promo code TCC to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 for only $39.99. Go to FabFitFun.com and use TCC. All right, let's get back to the show. So let's get into who the man in the walls was. To do this, let's go back to the night the suspect was being dragged out of the house into the cop car. And when he looked right at Annie Andrews, in that moment, she knew exactly who the person was who had been terrifying her and her family. His name was Daniel LaPlante. One day in early fall of 1986, Annie received a phone call from a charismatic 16-year-old boy named Danny LaPlante. She didn't know who he was, but he was really polite, and she was looking for a distraction after the loss of her mother and from homework, and Danny seemed to be perfect. He told her that he went to a nearby high school and had seen her at a football game and asked around for her name, and he eventually got her number. He explained that he got good grades in school, he was blonde, fit, and the captain of the high school football team. Annie had quite a crush on Danny, who now began calling her every night. So eventually he got the courage to ask her to go get ice cream. 
When the Andrews doorbell rang, Annie went to the door, excited to greet Danny. However, when she did, she was extremely disappointed. He was not the way he explained himself at all. He wasn't a football player. In fact, he was really tiny for his age. And he had greasy, dark, dark brown hair. And he had acne and a lot of acne scars on his face. Although Annie felt really uneasy about the fact that Danny had lied, she understood that maybe he just explained himself the way he wanted to be. So she would like him. So she decided that she would give him a chance and still go to get ice cream with him. I feel like that's really nice. That's really nice. I mean... She got catfished in 1986 and still went to get ice cream with him. She was him. probably the first person like, to catfished. be catfished. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I, I know that things were different because of the way technology was and you didn't have phones, you had a house phone, but... I would be kind of weirdly suspicious if someone said, oh, I just saw you and I asked around and got your number because I'd be like, well, who gave you my number? Yeah, that is a little odd. Unless they're listed, but it's still weird. It's it's a little is aggressive. It, is it weird or is it just weird to us? I think it might just be weird to us. Okay. I mean, I remember, I mean, all my friends had to call my house phone when I was a kid, like when I was in middle school. and But it's still, I never had someone from another high school just like... It's like, oh, I just got you. I never had anyone randomly call my house. Do you know what I mean? That's true. Yeah, me neither. Like, I gave my number to all my friends. Right. So that's a little strange. So during this date, although Annie was giving him a really good try, she described him as being really odd. It was like he didn't know what to say or how to act. She felt like Danny had an obsession with her mother and her mother's passing. He kept asking her questions about her death. And whether or not she she felt like she suffered. Those are really weird questions to and ask. And very personal. Yeah. He also asked how Annie felt the second she saw the life go out of her mother's eyes. What? what? Not a good date. I'm out. Yeah. That's it. I mean, I would have been out way before that. Yeah. This is the conversation we actually told you about earlier. Remember when I said she was talking to a boy, they had an ice cream date, and she told him she sometimes felt the presence of her mother, and he said, well, does she ever answer back? I was talking about her date with Danny. I was, it was, you know, I was a little foreshadowing, you know what I'm saying? Oh, we see what you did there. We okay. see what you did there. <laughs> so, Annie at this point, after Danny's going to make all these weird comments and be asking all these strange questions, she's basically had enough of his weird behavior. She can't be nice anymore. So she decides to cut the date short. She left and never answered the phone again for Daniel LaPlante. So that was it. A 16-year-old boy who lied about who he was was so scorned because a girl did not like him back. And his response was to terrorize her and her family by living in their walls for months and then dressed up in her dead mother's wedding dress with a blonde wig wielding a hatchet. Or was this something different? Was this a psychotic break from Daniel LaPlante? Or was it something that escalated over time? It's a good question that you propose. Oh, it is. That I pose. Whatever. (laughs) Sorry, guys. No, it's okay. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I try. We love you anyway. (laughs) So 16-year-old Danny Plant was charged with breaking and entering, armed assault in a dwelling, malicious injury to property, and armed burglary. 
He was initially held for a psychological evaluation, but was released to a juvenile detention center where he was going to await trial. One month later, the Andrews are going to move to New Hampshire. They needed a fresh start. And I think moving out of state's a good idea. Just gives you a little bit of a barrier. Even if this, even if he's locked away, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near anywhere where this guy was who so violated their privacy. I absolutely agree. I I would want to move to the other side Mm -hmm. of the uh, country if I could. Yeah. So by all accounts, Brian Andrews apologized profusely to his daughters and promised to always believe them from then on. Life lesson learned. Ultimate ammunition against your father, though. See, Dad, you didn't listen. You didn't listen. Yeah. So in October of 1987, just a year after the date between Danny and Annie, it was decided that Danny was to be tried as an adult. And because he was now being tried as an adult, he was now eligible for parole. His mother paid the $10,000 for bail, and he was released into her and her step and his stepfather's custody. It is this decision that will seal the fate of a family. But first, let's take time to talk about who Daniel LaPlante is. Because much of the research on this case talks about the bizarre aspects of it, but not the history behind the guy himself. Daniel LaPlante was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. In later discussions with psychologists after his arrest, LaPlante is going to admit that he suffered sexual abuse at the hands of multiple adults in his life. On top of this, LaPlante did not even have a safe place within the confines of his own home. Although his parents got divorced when he was older, his childhood with his father was horrific. His father often humiliated him in front of his friends, the few that he did have. LaPlante was tortured physically, emotionally, and sexually by his father. His father or his stepfather? His father. His his biological father. And it seemed like through the paperwork that maybe like the illusion was um, to like an uncle was doing the other abuse. So he was being abused by more than one person. And the multiple abuses this boy suffered are horrible. But unfortunately, it's the reality in the life of an abused child. It's almost like abusers can sense whether or not a child is vulnerable. And they take advantage of this and the fact that they know that they can get away with it. Abusers seem, seem to sense this in children, that they have been abused before. I completely agree. But I think that when you're an adult, every child is vulnerable. You're right. You're you know right. what I mean? I mean, the, I completely understand with what right. you're saying. I'm just also adding that layer to it as well. Right. Maybe I explained it wrong. Like, the power struggle is always going to be there between an adult and a child. But when a child is abused and there's an abuser around, they tend to be able to sense the fact that that child has been abused before. Correct. And then they repeat the right. process. Well, I mean, I understood what yeah. you meant, but I just wanted to make sure that they un- clarified un- it. Right. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. So LaPlante's troubles at home extended into his life at school. Academically, he struggled, being diagnosed with dyslexia. Socially, things were not much different. He had very few friends. And those who attended middle and high school with him described him as being weird or creepy. In documents released from North Middlesex High School, it states that LaPlante was referred to a psychiatrist due to his lack of hygiene and appearance and reluctance towards self-improvement and abnormal behavior. The psychiatrist diagnosed him with hyperactivity disorder. LaPlante continued to see the psychiatrist 
And he admitted there that the hyperactivity, the dyslexia, and his horrific home life seemed to him to be the brewing of a perfect storm. So he seemed to be aware of the fact that things were not going well for him and that it was building up to something. So it seemed like he was aware of it and wanted to work on it. He was advocating for himself. Do you think really quickly before we carry on, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm not spoiling anything. I Do you think, though, that him getting rejected by Annie was like the you know the last show that brought the Campbells back and more so like did he think that she was his saving grace from like like his life to, to his right like to his life you know what i mean because i see what you're saying maybe they he noticed the void missing in the family and he wanted to strangely become the the missing like replace the missing puzzle piece within the andrews family right and he felt like if he couldn't obtain that 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 would ultimately leave him, lead him to do other stuff. Bad things. Right. Yeah. Maybe. It was definitely a breaking point, what happened. Definitely a psychotic break. Oh, absolutely. I mean, nobody puts on a wig and you know, right. does all that crazy shit. Now, it seems like things could be working out for LaPlante here. You know what I mean? He's seeing a psychiatrist. He obviously realizes there's something going on in his head, that things aren't working out for him. But he's going to have to stop visiting the doctor because he tells his mother that the psychiatrist made a sexual advance towards him during one of their sessions. Now, this has never been 100% verified. Maybe maybe this did happen. Maybe he didn't, or maybe he didn't want to see the psychiatrist anymore. I don't know what happened. There was no complaints filed or anything. There was no paperwork regarding this. It's just a statement made by LaPlante um, years and years after the fact. Okay, so we're going to take a break to hear from our third sponsor, Kopari. Usually when I wake up in the morning, my mind is going crazy. There's a million things I have to think about. What's going on at work? What's going to go on after work? Did I get that grad school discussion post done? I really have to edit the podcast. But there's one thing that I never spend time thinking about, and that's deodorant. I just swipe it on and go. But this is something I use every day. So if there's a safer alternative out there, I'd want to know about it. That's why I've got to tell you about the aluminum-free deodorant that changed the game for me. Kopari is currently running a campaign, The Truth Stinks, about aluminum and all the reasons why you don't want it in your deodorant. Instead of plugging up your sweat glands, Kopari's deodorant takes care of any smell without messing with your body's natural patterns. And it works. It fights odor with a plant-based active such as sage oil and coconut oil, and it outlasts your longest days. This is Kopari's number one selling product. They can barely keep it in stock. It's gotten a lot of love from editors from Cosmo and People, and there are thousands of five-star reviews on Kopari's website. Kopari's deodorant doesn't leave behind a sticky white residue, just a sweet, subtle smell of fresh coconut milk. It's also free of silicones, sulfates, parabens, GMOs, and baking soda. So it's great for sensitive skin. And reordering is easy with a deodorant subscription. Just choose how often you want to receive it and they will ship it to you automatically for free. So you never run out of deodorant again. Because that's always embarrassing. Kopari offers a money-back guarantee. So there's no reason not to try it. 
go to koparibeauty.com slash TCC to make the safe switch today and save $5 off your first order when you subscribe. That's Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash TCC. Koparibeauty.com slash TCC. All right, let's get back to the show. So where we left off, Danny LaPlante is going to stop seeing his therapist because he's accusing him of making sexual advances. So I know that this is, there's no founded evidence behind this. So whether it's true or whether it's not true, what we do know is that after he stops seeing the psychiatrist, this is when Daniel LaPlante is going to turn to a legal activity and we can see the escalation of his crimes begin. Because no boy goes from normal to living in people's walls overnight. Let's be honest. No. No. He began breaking into different properties in the Townsend area and would steal valuables from within their home. As time went on, his behavior escalated. Not in what he stole, but in the way he tormented the families he was stealing from. He began leaving items behind when he broke into homes to make it obvious that someone had broken in, but not so much so that they would know right away. Like, he would subtly move things. Which is scary, because it's more psychological. Yes, that's because, the whole you know, point. you could be like, oh, hey, uh, why is my table moved? I definitely Yeah, or who that. took all the yeah. batteries out of the remote of my TV yeah, changer. that's no. really, like, crazy. Yeah. Mind games, to the extreme. Yes. He would leave drinks half drunk on the countertop, or he would move things all around the house. Like you said, he was just playing mind games with the families. It, it became less about what he was taking and more about what he was doing. And it was in 1986, are you ready for this bombshell? I'm ready. That Daniel LaPlante broke into the house of the Andrews family. During his time in the house, he saw pictures of Annie and took the phone number of the family from the house. And that's when he began calling Annie under the guise that he had gotten the phone number from a friend. Wow. Yes. That's even creepier. That's even, that's it's so, so much bizarre. Worse. There's so many layers of creepiness in this. It's wow. insanity. So he break, broke into the house, liked the girl in the picture, started calling her and pretending, her he, pretending he was like this football player. And that was the moment that he got like infatuated. Yeah. So this leads us back to where we were. Daniel LaPlante, out of jail, pending trial, and is back in the home in which he knew so much pain in. He's definitely going to get triggered. And a few weeks after his release, Daniel LaPlante would prove to society that he was a clear and present danger. Daniel would later tell authorities that he was bored. So he wandered into the woods behind his house. He followed them through a little under a mile, and it was then that he came upon the house of the Gustafson family. He made the decision to break in. Halfway through the break-in, three members of the family returned home, a pregnant 33-year-old Priscilla and her two children, Abigail, age 7, and William, age 5. This had happened before to LaPlante, but he had always run out of the house, but this time he was a lot angrier than he usually was. And this time he had a gun. LaPlante tied the children up while holding the mother at gunpoint. Once the children were restrained, he took Priscilla into the bedroom and he raped the pregnant mother. Once he was finished, 
He shot her twice, point-blank range, in the back of the head, leaving her face down on the bed. Next, he turned to the children. He brought William upstairs into the bathroom, ran the water in the tub, told William he was going to take a bath, and he drowned the five-year-old in the upstairs bathroom. Not wanting Abigail to see her brother in panic, LaPlante brought the seven-year-old girl to the bathroom downstairs and drowned her in that tub. After the murders, it appeared that LaPlante stayed at the house and does what he always does. He left a beer, poured into a glass, half drunk on the counter. He also moved furniture and items all over the house. Eventually, LaPlante left the Gustafson home. Later that day, Andrew Gustafson arrived home, expecting to find his family. However, he arrived to the scene of chaos in his home. He ran upstairs looking for his wife and children and found his wife shot and laying on the bed. He called 911 and was instructed to leave the house in case the killer was still in there. It was the police who eventually found the bodies of the children. When police arrived on the scene, they knew exactly who had committed these crimes. Moved furniture, left drinks, less than half a mile away. It had to be LaPlante. It was his M.O. When police arrived at the LaPlante home to speak to 17-year-old Daniel LaPlante, he ran out the back door and into the woods. And for the next 48 hours, LaPlante was missing and considered to be armed and incredibly dangerous. The surrounding areas were on edge and went into chaos. Most stayed indoors. However, none of them were more frightened, even though they were states away, than the Andrews family. Although they lived in New Hampshire, they knew that LaPlante was deeply disturbed and they didn't know what lengths he was willing to go to to finish what he started. I mean, think about it. He lived in their house, in their walls for months. He's got patience. Oh, yeah, and he's not. he doesn't mind, you know, having to deal with yes. you know, anything that comes with that. So Brian Andrews is going to spend those two nights sitting on his porch with a gun in his lap, determined this time to protect his daughters. Police had an idea of where LaPlante was. They knew that the boy had broken into the house of a woman nearby, held her at gunpoint, kidnapped her, and forced her to take the car. So he made the woman drive far away with her and then eventually just let her go. And I know that he did that because he didn't want her to report the car missing and then the police go chase. But I do think it's interesting that he wouldn't let Priscilla go and the children go, but he let this woman go. I think it's... So she's lucky. Yeah, I think it's because it has to do with the family dynamic. Yeah, I think he wanted to punish this this family got the brunt of his anger towards he has so much issues with family whether it's his own the rejection of the Andrews family it's built up. Right. I don't think it has to do with like an individual. I see. So you're saying his anger is more directed towards family. Absolutely because yeah. it's the family that he didn't have. Right. So the search for LaPlante was vast and a lot of off-duty police officers in Massachusetts are actually going to volunteer to join the search just to put the communities at ease. Everyone wanted him to be found. Law enforcement eventually gets a call that he was spotted eight miles away from his hometown, hiding in a shed in a lumberyard. Police had him surrounded. LaPlante eventually came out without any force being used. 
When police yelled at him to keep his hands up or they would shoot, he kept yelling, don't shoot, and then began hysterically laughing. Daniel LaPlante was found guilty of murder and sentenced to three life sentences to be run consecutively, not making him eligible for parole until 2033. However, in 2014, LaPlante was hoping for a sentence reduction based on the fact that the courts had decided that juveniles cannot be sentenced to life in prison without parole. And basically, like, that would be the ending of his life. Right. So a lot of uh, cases that delved out sentences like that, that that gave out sentences like that, had to be reevaluated. And one of those cases that had to be reevaluated in 2014 was the case of Daniel LaPlante. So he basically was asking to be resentenced, which would mean he would be eligible for parole if he was granted this resentencing. During this hearing, Gustafsson is going to make a statement that he never wants LaPlante to be released. His sister-in-law is going to make a similar statement, talking about the loss of her sister and, and niece and nephew. It is also here that we see LaPlante was not exactly a model prisoner. It seemed he made a few complaints against the jail he was being held at. First, he sued multiple times for violation of his religious rights. He was a practicing Satanist and he was denied access to materials that he needed in order to carry out certain satanic rituals. He also sued because the prison officials were not releasing uh, the adult porn that he was being sent through the mail. I mean, that shows right there his character and his state of mind, Mm -hmm. and he should stay where he is. Exactly. There's no remorse here if he's doing things like this. And that's exactly what a Middlesex judge is going to say. The judge is going to make the ruling that not only was it correct that LaPlante was tried as an adult, but that the sentencing was reasonable and she doesn't believe in any way that LaPlante has been rehabilitated. So the ruling made in 1988 stood and LaPlante still remains in jail. Good. Yep. I mean, that right there, that's that one sentence uh, of how he is not a model inmate just proves it. Right. It's the proof. Like, that's all you need to know. Right. He just, he definitely is not remorseful, it seems. Um, however, I will say it does seem to me like there is some deep-rooted um, issues with mental health. So maybe, if anything, it should be reevaluated that he be brought to a mental health facility versus being housed in a jail. I don't know. That becomes a tricky subject. And I I'm surprised that he wasn't. Um, found incompetent to stand trial, actually. And that might be because of maybe bad lawyering. But, I mean, he's if I've ever seen someone not fit to stand trial, it might be someone who is as disturbed as this because his, his history is, is pretty alarming. And it, and it shows how Terrifying. there's... Oh, yeah. And it just shows how there's a gradual increase from him being a child all the way up, even till today. Right. These it's the, the same thing. Yeah. And they'll never change. No, and then I, I also believe that the judge was correct in saying he's not rehabilitated, and if he did get out, he would act out again because he was released from prison because of what he did to the Andrews family, and he killed the Gustafson family. So what's going to happen if we release him now? He's yeah. ruined his chances of that. It's escalation at its finest. So I hope you enjoyed that crazy story 
The escalation of the story is nuts. I can't believe that. Oh, it just gives me the chills thinking about it. I can't believe it. this was even a, 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 a real, real story. Yeah. Yes. So oh, creepy. so creepy. Oh, jinx. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, like always, if you like us, leaving a five-star review would be amazing. We've gotten a lot of great feedback lately, and it just feels really good to get that. If you have already left five stars and you want to keep helping out, you can donate to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash couple. All right, guys. See you later. Bye, guys.